listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Titus chapter 1 Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. This is God's words. Mark, hand over to you. Now then, you will have heard me coughing already. I'm sorry about that. I hope that doesn't prove to be the main thing that you remember from this service as a whole. Uh, It's a joy, really, for me to be over here in Chester this afternoon. 
uh, we and our local ministers for Turner, that Daniel has been attending for some years, have been watching with interest to see how all of this would develop. Uh, I was able to be here for the commissioning meeting, civilian, I get wrong, for the commissioning meeting, and it's great to have this opportunity to be with you on the Lord's Day. Now, we read Old and New Testament, but it's Titus I want us to have a look at this afternoon. Titus chapter 1 and the first three verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which is according to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Saviour. We live in a world that's confused about so many things and where so many of the messages that we receive are deliberately designed to manipulate us. But it's a great blessing to know that there's one who always tells the truth. And the phrase that we have in these verses is God cannot lie. Now notice in the ESV it says God never lies. And the word that's used here only occurs once in the New Testament. And the idea is God is incapable of lying. Lying is the thing that God just cannot do. God cannot lie. So what I want us to do is have a little think about that. Because if God cannot lie, then we know we've got safe ground to stand on. We can listen to God with confidence. That's good as far as it goes. But then the question arises, if God cannot lie, what does God say? And when we know what God says, how should it affect us? And how should we respond? So our first big thing, the truthfulness of God. Paul doesn't say, as I've mentioned, that God will not lie. He says that God cannot lie. And that truth is very difficult for us to grasp so often. Because it's very, very different from the world around us. A world that's saturated and governed by lies. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Because Satan deceived Adam and Eve our first parents, with lies. And as a result of that, he led them to sin and to disobedience, to pain and sorrow and death. And today, the influence of the devil in the world is to hold the world in pain and in darkness and in confusion by means of lies. The lies that he stirs up and the lies that he spreads abroad. And think about this. The devil is lying to people about what it means to be human. Now, you'll notice that the idea of what it means to be a human has become confused. If you get a sophisticated enough machine by means of artificial intelligence, does it develop consciousness and so can rival a human? Do we follow Peter Singer, the medical ethicist, who says that a healthy animal is worth more than a severely disabled child? There's a lot of confusion and lies in the world about what it means to be human. We get lies about human origins and lies about eternal destiny. It seems that the standard formal opinion is that there is no life after death. And yet everyone that I've met in the final stages of their life, and everyone that I've buried, whatever their thoughts beforehand might have been, as death drew near, there was at least the hope that there was something after death. It seemed as if that line was just too stiff and too severe for them to really hold on to. The devil fuels the lies of our religious world. There are some classics here, aren't there? Um, heaven is attainable by those who are prepared to work for it. That's the works principle. 
and it's basically a lie of the devil. That doesn't work because of the serious effect of sin. Another religious lie is that rituals and priests can help you out. Well, you know, they can maybe point you to Christ, but what can they do for you themselves? I sometimes feel I have to be very wary when people say, Mark, will you pray for me? So, well, of course I'll pray for you, but you need to pray for yourself. Because it's not our prayers that make a difference, it's for God who answers prayer. See, the world is filled with those kinds of religious lies. And outside of the religious sphere, we've got advertising, we adverts tell us that the way to be really happy and fulfilled is, surprise, surprise, buy something. You know, we need to recognise where people are coming from. Politicians who make promises in their manifestos, I think sometimes with good intent, but then when they come into power, their focus seems to fall onto other things. Maybe they're overtaken by events, maybe it's a bit of a smokescreen, who can know? And then you've got pressure groups who plead and have special pleading, stressing the points that support their argument and conveniently forgetting other things which are equally true. We live in a world that's full of lies. But you know, the best of people can lie, whether they're lying out of ignorance, they thought it was true but it wasn't, or they're lying out of self-interest, they know it's not true but they're pulling a wool over it. Uh, have you ever caught a little child, what are you doing? Nothing. Where did they get that from? What's in your hands? Nothing, show me. You know, self-interest. The world is full of that kind of thing. But whatever we might be confronted with by the people around us, whatever might be stirred up by the work of the devil, our confidence is that God cannot lie. Now this is the reason. We can lie because we are sinners. But God cannot lie because God is sinless. And we can go further than that. If God were to lie, he would cease to be God. Because God is the God of truth. A lying God is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? It's like dry water, or dark light, or dirty purity. It makes no sense. God is truth. If God were to lie, he would cease to be God. We read from Numbers chapter 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? Now this great truth, that God is a God who cannot lie, just a few little points here. Number one, it means that God makes no mistakes. He's all-knowing, and he's all-wise, and he never lies to us because he doesn't know any better. Okay? He makes no mistakes. The second thing is God's never taken by surprise. He knows the end from the beginning. Nothing that happens is a surprise to him. He never lies because he's overtaken by circumstances. You know? Never taken by surprise. The third thing, God is able to carry out his own will. Because he's sovereign and he's all-powerful. He can bring good out of evil. And he can overrule even the most powerful and the most evil of men. In Proverbs chapter 20, when we read, a king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Uh, Psalm 115 tells us, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. So we can have confidence that God doesn't lie 
because he's unable to do what he says. Whatever he says, he is able to perform. So we can have confidence on those grounds. And the last one. God doesn't lie because he doesn't learn as he goes along. You know, God isn't trapped within time in the way that we are. We are just creatures of time and space, but God is above and over it all. Sometimes with the best of intentions, we intend to do something and we promise it, but we are just overtaken by circumstances or we learn better. It never happens to God. We read in Isaiah 46, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Ultimately, God cannot lie because God cannot change. He gets things right first time every time and when he speaks he tells us things as they are okay now with that being so it's very important to recognize what god has said and this is where we come to verse two the acknowledgement of the truth which is according to godliness in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began. What does the God who cannot lie said? Before time began, he promised eternal life. That's the focus in this little verse. Now, if God can't lie and all his statements are true, another thing that's true is if God can't lie, he always carries out his promises and he carries out his threats. And so here we see that in eternity, before the world was made, our God knew that our first parents, Adam and Eve, would believe a lie and would fall, and that in their sinful rebellion, they would inevitably come under the just judgment and condemnation of God. But in his love, he made a promise, a promise of eternal life, rather than merely eternal death. And we know how this works itself out. Our God chose a people for himself, greater in number than the sand of the sea, drawn from all the nations of the world, and he promised to give them eternal life. Our God promised to send his own son into the world to redeem those people, delivering them from death and securing life on their behalf. And our God promised to send his Holy Spirit, to draw those men and women to believe in his Son, Jesus Christ, so that by faith they might have eternal life. Eternal life in the experience of men and women is the promise of God. God has promised and it must come to pass because he's a God that cannot lie. This promise of God from all eternity well, it's a free promise, isn't it? Because God was under no compulsion to save people like me and you. After all, he didn't save the angels who sinned. That's a striking thought. This promise was costly because the promise to give people like us life meant that he had to give his son to death. But God promised 
and God cannot lie, whatever the cost. And this promise was certain because he promised he will bring it to pass. And what we see all around us, all of the rolling centuries, in the building of the Church of Jesus Christ in the world is exactly that, the working out of the promise of the God who cannot lie. Now, there's a lot of truth in this, a lot of stuff that we could spend time talking about and thinking about. But the truths here, this truth of God promising from eternity, eternal life, that's a truth that's big enough and noble enough and grand enough to secure our salvation. Sometimes as Christians we can struggle and think, will I persevere? Am I real? Have I just imbibed the Christianity of those around us? Did I just go along with what my parents thought? Do I just like being in church and I've never really been rattled? If the pressure was on, would I really stand or would I prove to be false? We can think like that. But what we need to recognise is if God has promised to save his people, he will do it. A simple faith in an almighty saviour will secure a soul for all eternity. Because if Christ has promised to save us, he'll keep us right to the very end. This kind of truth is designed to bring us comfort, you know, because every real Christian has been loved by God from eternity. Every real Christian has been redeemed by Christ on the cross. Every real Christian has been brought to faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And every real Christian has received a life, eternal life, that will never end. And so what that means is, if we are believers, we are part of the outworking of this great promise. The word of the God who cannot lie. Think about this. Ephesians 1 and verse 4. He chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now think about that. And if you're a believer, put yourself in the verse. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and without blame before him in love. How do you know that's true? Because that's the word of a God who cannot lie. How about this? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Will the Lord Jesus Christ keep you or will he get fed up of you? Put yourself in the verse. He'll never cast you out. How do we know? It's the word of the God that cannot lie. John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. What was Christ doing on the cross? Was he doing something abstract? Was he doing something theoretical? Was he doing something to deal with sin in principle? Or was he doing something to deal with sin in its reality, in the life of you and in the life of me? Notice what he's saying. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Do you trust in Christ and have you become a sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ? When you look to the cross, you're able to say, he loved me and he gave himself for me. How do we know that? It's the word of the God that cannot lie. John 6, no one can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Has, have you been drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith? then there is no doubt but that he will keep you and on the last day he will raise you up to be with himself forever. Do you know how we know? 
because that's the word of a God that cannot lie. Again and again, the promises of the word of God are designed to bring comfort to Christian people like me and like you. Next thing, he makes eternal life clear in his word. He promised it in eternity, but he makes it clear in his word. Verse 3, but he has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Saviour. There's no way for us to know what God promised in eternity because we weren't there unless God himself tells us. And that's the point. He's manifested his eternal promise in his word so that we can hear the words of the God that cannot lie and we can hold on to them for our comfort. Now think about how this works. In the Old Testament, God pointed to it. Because the Old Testament is full of pictures and promises that tell us what God promised in eternity and was going to come with Jesus Christ. The first gospel promise in the world, it's in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, Jesus Christ. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I promise to send one born of a woman who will destroy you, crush your head, and who will be harmed in the process. You'll bruise his heel. But although his harm is not destroyed, you'll win a victory. And then a little later on in the same chapter, you've got not just the first gospel promise, but the first gospel action. Because for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now they're hiding in the trees in shame and fear. They've covered themselves with leaves from the trees. They could perfectly well have a plant-based wardrobe, couldn't they? All the rage these days. Vegan clothes. But God's purpose is to do something different. This isn't to cover them over because plants aren't adequate covering. This is because in the day that you eat thereof, you will die. Why didn't they die? Because the animals died in their place. The establishment of the principle of sacrifice. Blood is shed to cover guilty men and women so that the wrath of God might not fall on them. And clothed in the reality of that sacrifice, clothed in its righteousness and covered by its death, they can come out of the trees and they can stand in the presence of God, accepted. Gospel promises. You get the first clear picture of eternal life four chapters later in Genesis 5. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. So it's not just something about this earth, it's something about eternity, life beyond this earth. You see it clearly pictured there. Where did God take him? He didn't land him on a mountain. He took him to himself. Eternal life. The flood. The flood is a picture of final judgment. The final judgment that awaits all mankind for their sins. But the ark pictures Christ who goes through the judgment for us and who shelters us from death and on the other side of judgment gives us life. Old Testament sacrifices appointed by God as pictures of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. 
Old Testament washings and purifications. Pictures of being delivered from the corruption of sin. The thing that the Lord Jesus Christ would do when he washes our hearts and sets us free in the new birth. And on and on and on it goes. God is revealing this eternal promise in words and actions. And this love and this commitment that he shows to us, despite our unfaithfulness and our unworthiness, the love and commitment that he showed to Old Testament Israel, for instance, despite all their disobedience, they went to exile and he brought them back. You know the story. This love and this faithfulness is a picture of his gracious commitment to save his people and to keep them right at the end. Jeremiah 31, verses 3 and 4. The Lord has appeared to me of old, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I promised it in eternity, but you weren't there. Now in time, I've drawn you to myself. And you can see the way that I keep my promises to save. You get the picture? The Old Testament points to it. It's accomplished in the coming of Christ. Because everything that God promised about Christ was fulfilled. We can just throw some of this stuff out. He was the Son of God who came down from heaven. He was born of a virgin. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, heal the sick, and set the captives free. He was the lamb that was led to the slaughter. He's the one who bore the sins of his people and took their punishment. He was laid in a rich man's grave. He rose again from the dead. He's exalted to the right hand of God where he reigns until all his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. All those things are promised in the Old Testament and they come to fulfilment in Jesus Christ. And why did he do it? He did it all for his people. We know that while he was under the shadow of the cross, he said, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. The promise of God is coming to fulfilment in Jesus Christ. That's the sum and substance of the promises. That's the root and the foundation of God's saving work in the lives of men and women. It was promised in eternity. But now, after centuries and centuries, Christ has come, the promised one, to make public the promise of the Father. And then, in our day, in the Gospel, it's proclaimed. So you get here, but now, in due time, he has manifested his word through preaching. Due time, at the right time, when God's eternal promise had been fulfilled by Christ, the God who cannot lie spoke clearly. He manifested his word, as he sent the Apostle Paul and the other apostles to proclaim to us clearly God's great promise of eternal life. What do we mean by life? Well, as a result of sin, death entered the world. 
You know, in Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't need to go after this too much, but let me just say this. Um, death is physical death, the separation of body and soul. Okay, that's physical death. But death is also spiritual death and eternal death. Spiritual death is death on the inside. It means that I as a sinner am separated from God. I don't know him. He doesn't live and savingly work in me. It's what you get in Ephesians 2. He made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritual death. You see that with Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. And eternal death. Eternal death is where a man or a woman, body and soul, are separated from God forever. What that means is that sinfulness produces death, which means that people are separated from God, deliberately walking in disobedience, and not knowing fellowship and relationship with God. And people are under the wrath of God, where God is angry with us, and ultimately will bring us to eternal punishment in hell. Death. Physical, spiritual, eternal. But God, in eternity, promised life. And Christ has come to bring life. And that's the wonderful thing. Now, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10 is a great verse. But now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christ has abolished death. He's dealt with death and conquered over it for all of his people. And through the gospel, the life and immortality, the spiritual life, the life forever that Christ has accomplished on the cross, through the gospel, it's brought to light. It's proclaimed. It's made clear. A life that answers all the problems of death. There is an answer to physical death. It isn't that if you believe in Jesus, you won't die. It's that if the Lord Jesus Christ is your saviour, when he comes again, he'll raise you from the dead. Perfect, transformed, glorious, and you'll be with the Lord forever. There's deliverance through Jesus Christ from eternal death. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the answer to eternal death, eternal life, that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. They've been set free. This is a Welsh Calvinistic Methodist general. John Elias, one of the great preachers of previous generations, said, for in his death, our death died with him on the tree. And a great number by his blood will go to heaven set free. Eternal death is overcome through the sufferings of Christ on the cross. And spiritual death, being separated from God in our lives and having hearts that rebel against him. You know what? That changes as well when a person is converted. And the Lord Jesus Christ sends his spirit to live in their hearts. And the dominion of sin, the power of sin is broken. So sin doesn't rule. And little by little, through the work of the spirit of God, he strengthens us against those temptations and he transforms us so that we might become more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. 
It's the work of Christ for us to bring us true life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now you see, that life, the life promised by God in eternity, the life secured by Christ in history, and the life proclaimed in the gospel, is designed to produce three things in these verses. And we can just touch on this quickly. The first one is in verse 2, which is the hope of eternal life. Because there is much in eternal life which is still future. In the New Testament, the word hope isn't what happens when you sat at exams. I hope I passed. I'm not clear, I hope I passed. It's not that. The hope in the New Testament is there is something certain, but it's still future. We hope for it with confidence because we know it's coming, but we're hoping for it because it's not here yet. That's hope in the New Testament. And we have the hope that on the day of judgment we are safe. We have the hope that we are delivered from everlasting damnation. We have the hope that we will have a perfect life with Christ and we'll be like him and live with him forever. We can have confidence in that because Christ has secured it and we hope for it because it hasn't yet come. That is the word of the God that cannot lie. That's what gives us confidence. That's what enables us to hold on. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. He shall not come into judgment he has passed from death into life. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've already been delivered from judgment. You have life. And the fullness of that life will come when we go to be with Christ and we see him as he is. Assurance is an issue for Christians very often. Some Christians more than others. And the reasons for that are many and various. But this passage has a truth which is designed to help us with our Christian assurance, which is the God who promises to save us is a God who cannot lie. And I think sometimes our faith just needs to take God at his word. Whoever trusts in him will not be put to shame. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you. And we need to have confidence I trust the God that cannot lie and he'll carry me through. So that's the first one, hope. The second one in verse 1 is faith. Yeah? Um, to the faith of God's elect. What that means is this manifesting of eternal life, this preaching of the gospel, it's designed to show them how to receive eternal life and how to walk in new life. She's had enough, she's off. How to walk in new life, isn't it? And there are important works, things at play here. Faith is the way to life. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Well, if that's true, what we need to do is hear the voice of the God that cannot lie. Galatians 2. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing that, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. 
For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Or John 3, which is easier. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who doesn't believe the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. God says, you cannot save yourself in Christ. God says, and Christ will save you if you believe in him. That's the word of the God eternal one. Faith means embracing the life giver. If life is in Christ and in Christ alone, faith means trusting him to save us. Because faith isn't just, I understand the gospel. Faith is, the gospel shows me my need of a saviour. And the gospel reveals to me that that saviour is Jesus Christ who died on the cross to take away sins and rose again. If that is true, what the gospel calls me to do is to trust him. To trust him to save me because he promises if I trust him he will save me. Because his death on the cross was a death for sinners. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name. And to receive Christ means to rest on as your only hope. Um, I said to somebody a while ago that one of the problems we have these days is we think about Christ like a mobile phone. I don't want to be disrespectful in any way. But what I mean is this. I'm not sure I'm quite good enough. I need a bit of reliance on Jesus to top me up. Do you, you know, how, how much of it, I'm not doing too well today. I need a bit of Jesus to top me up. That's not the gospel. The gospel is either Christ does it all or he does nothing at all. We don't need a bit of Christ to top us up. We need the glorious saviour Jesus Christ to do it all for us. To wash away all our sins and to make us completely acceptable to God. Now faith is the mark of God's elect here. You notice that? The faith of God's elect in verse 1. And that's a teaching that often causes problems for Christian people. But in the New Testament, that teaching is designed to bring comfort. Because election is an insight into the free eternal love of God. He's determined to bring life where otherwise there would only be death. And he does that for everyone who he's given to his son Jesus Christ to redeem. And the gospel tells us, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What that means is this, if you want to know whether or not you're elect, you can't look into eternity past and find out. If you want to know whether or not you're elect, you can't look into the Lamb's Book of Life. If you want to know whether or not you're elect, you need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's evidence of the evidence that Christ did deceive. We've got to stop letting these things shake us and rattle us unhelpfully. And recognise when the Lord Jesus Christ calls us, and by his grace we are able to put our faith in him, what he's doing is he's working out in our lives his eternal promise. I'll save them, and they'll never perish. If Christ has worked in our lives in that way, then we are one of his people, and we can take comfort from it. Faith also, well, we have to walk by faith. If God will keep his promise to save us, 
Do you think God will keep his promise to keep you? And when you fall to restore you? And when you struggle to help you? Now don't get me wrong. The Lord doesn't promise that whoever becomes a Christian never falls and never falls badly. And sometimes shamefully and desperately. The Bible itself and the history of the church is full of that. But what the word of God does tell us is this. Our Saviour has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And our Lord has said, I will heal their backslidings, I will love them freely. And that's the word of the God that cannot lie. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And the last thing, just quickly, in verse 1, is godliness. The faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which is according to godliness. Very simply this, heaven is a world of holiness. And the moment that eternal life takes root in our hearts, that eternal life is to show itself in the fruit of holiness in our lives. If death on the inside has been replaced by life on the inside, then the fruits of death on the outside need to be replaced by the fruits of life on the outside. New life must grow and it must be seen. Faith works by love. And if we love Christ, we'll keep his commandments. And the end of it all, that he might present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You might say, it's hard to live a holy life, and it is. But the Lord keeps his promise. If he's written his law on your heart, and if he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within you, then we can have confidence that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfil the lusts of the flesh. And we hold on to that promise with sometimes a sense of desperation. But it is the word of the God of Canaan. And he's faithful. And he'll bring us through. So, conclusion, very quickly. Do you believe a God who cannot lie? Now, I will take this one home and think about it, okay? Do you believe the God who cannot lie? If you're not sure whether or not you're really a Christian and your faith is in Christ, listen to the word of the God that cannot lie. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who doesn't believe God has made him a liar because he hasn't believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. What's that saying? If you don't believe what God is telling you about his Son, Jesus Christ, that he's a saviour from sin and you need him, and that he'll save you if you trust in him, if you don't think that's true and say, when God says that, he's lying to you, what you're doing is making God out to be a liar. But you couldn't be further from the truth because he's the God that cannot lie. And if you're a believer here this afternoon, you can see how important it is to believe the God who cannot lie. He's promised us eternal life and so he will keep us so we should trust him and we should look to him to help us and as the Lord blesses us it should fill our hearts with joy 
that the prospect of an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, I had more competition with that sermon than I've had for quite a while, including thinking she was actually going to come and drag me from the pulpit at some point. But, putting all that aside, you get the big picture. This is a new church. This is a church that believes the Bible and says to people, you can depend on this word, not for all these historical reasons about the manuscripts, but ultimately because the God who speaks in this word is a God who can't lie. That's a foundation strong enough to build a church on. That's a foundation strong enough for somebody to save God. And that's a foundation strong enough for somebody to build a life on. And it's with that confidence that we have to entrust ourselves to the God that cannot lie. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.